This show is brought to you by Buzzsprout.com, the best and excitingly prettiest way to start a podcast. Hello. I'm on my way out. Thought I'd drop by. It's done. Once she entered the hall, she told us everything. And from what I'm told, she suffered. Long. My work. It's finished here. Time to move on. We didn't want to do this, you know. But like the mistress said, in the end, and in the beginning, You gave us no choice. Please, do give my regards to your elders when they get home. If I see you again, I will kill you. So many times over that your soul will forget what it's ever been like to feel alive. Do you understand? I understand that you're a being of your word, and that is good enough for me. Chapter 15 Sleep Doctor Part 4 The Long Hall of Seams <laughs> Happy Halloween, listeners. One dark space. When the world around her froze and everything went dark, Jamie Mortimer's mind began to run itself out in a particular kind of disorder. It was exhausting. It felt like she had too many of her in her head. All of them, all of her scratching and clawing, like crazed cannibalized rats in a rotting barrel, the water slowly rising thanks to a hole initially punched out for air. Soon, she, the rotting barrel of nothing, would begin to sink slowly beneath the endless waves, never to be seen or heard of again. Unless, unless she kept listening. That was the only sense inside her that still seemed to be active, 
still seemed to be sending messages to her hippocampus, reminding her of times Jamie only just remembered that she had forgotten. Jamie dismissed these times, these memories, knowing as she did it that the banishment in itself would only be a temporary one. She focused on another thought that related to her more immediate issues. Her hearing was still working, that was positive. On the negative side, the sound that she was hearing in the context of her current predicament delineated more sinister intentions than any blind or paralyzed being would be comfortable with. And right now, Jamie Mortimer was both. All Jamie could hear was laughter. A cackling sound that she recognized all too well, because it was a cackle that also belonged to her. Jamie could not move. She could not speak, only listen, and play around with the sound's contextual connotations in her own mind in order to find crumbs of strength to build on. Perhaps enough to break herself out of this place. At the very least, these confines. The laughter continued, and Jamie's mind continued to race. All at once she was reminded of her time in the Edinburgh Undermines, held prisoner on the same floor as the reactor, a device of pure evil designed only to protect purer evil, evil that she had set out to put a stop to before she got herself captured. At this notion, the laughter grew higher in pitch, more gleeful, with a touch of insanity, as if ridiculousness itself was constructed from some kind of poisonous helium derivative. I was going to stop it, Jamie thought, as loudly as she could. I was going to fucking try. That was when her corrupted reflection finally spoke, although the laughter emanating from it Whatever creature it was, some kind of shapeshifter, if Jamie had to hazard a guess, the laughter never ceased. The speech that came in response to Jamie's loud thought became layered and mixed into the surrounding guffaw. Still lying to ourselves, are we? The thing said. When are we ever gonna get out of that filthy habit? This time, Jamie tried to speak aloud. But all that could be felt over the loud surrounding howls were warm, tickling sensations around the insides of her lips. That funny feeling you get, or that high-pitched sound you make when you try to force air through a closed mouth. And other than the thing's voice, nothing could be heard. Oh, for goodness sake, don't consciously choose to die in denial. You already tried that once. And look where that got you. That's right. Here. In the end, you brought you right back to me. The thing read Jamie's confused expression and continued, choosing it seemed to lower the surrounding laughing layer of sound so that its words could perhaps be better understood. That, or like so many other things in human life, it had faded out of focus into the background, like parental disappointment, or a bad song a friend simply refuses to turn off no matter how much you tell them you hate it. I know that you don't know who I am, even though, at the same time, on many differing levels, you absolutely do. Like most Once Upon a Humans, you are, for a large portion of your initial existence, a walking contradiction. And the same is certainly true thereafter. This much you are most likely aware of. Jamie made a face that seemed to say, Huh, yeah, well, no shit. The thing, 
the her that was doing the talking, chose not to respond to this facial expression directly, and simply and complicatedly continued. What you may not be aware of is exactly what I am. As it said this, Jamie could tell that the thing was smiling. Jamie could tell that even behind forced closed eyes. The thing was smiling at her with her own face. Jamie could literally only imagine what this version of herself looked like. Perhaps it had blackened, rotted teeth, matted hair happily jumping out in hateful clumps. A broken form of herself, with nothing better to do at her impossible old age but torment her past as sinisterly as she did literally. Or perhaps that internal description that she had just mapped out was completely, entirely wrong. Maybe she was beautiful, approachable, desirable. A version of Jamie that had made less mistakes instead of more, and was being simply entertained by a lesser version of herself in this dented, refractory dimension, passing the frozen moments as they blew by on the winds of the segregated times. Jamie tried to force her eyes open, but they would not budge, as if the bags of sand weighing down her lids were also made of time. This she knew was accurate, because, on some level, she knew that a great deal of this was a fucked-up kind of mystical theatre. Whatever this thing was, it wanted to teach Jamie a lesson. For good or for ill, Jamie was about to learn something, or some things, and given the baleful nature of this place that Jamie had found herself in, she had to guess that it had a lot to do with her own personal history. Are you ready yet? The thing asked, a mocking twang in its voice. Jamie responded with a bored shrug, attempting to convey confidence she only slightly felt. You won't be able to shrug your way out of this one, darling. We both know that you have got some explaining to do. Just then, the volume of the thing's voice seemed to increase exponentially. Jamie also felt more than a slight shift in his proximity. It was coming closer. That was when Jamie decided to tactfully turn up the right corner of her mouth, displaying a confident, one-sided grin that Jamie knew, she knew, got under the thing's skin. I know that you know that right now, you have no choice but to trust me. But I want more than trust. I want understanding. I want obedience. I am your mirror mistress, after all. Now, open your eyes. Two. The Mistress. An artfully scarred face burned cold. A corrupted complexion as conflicting as heavy rain clouds on a hot summer day. Thin lips and thin gums holding jagged, unsettling teeth by sinful threats. The smile extended wider than that of the span of the mouth, cutting into the prematurely wrinkled cheeks that seemed to be constantly quivering and cutting further back behind its jawline. The form was taller than she, the arms were longer, but Jamie couldn't tell if that was a side effect of the seemingly spherical space she was strapped in, where every inch of the endless surrounding wall looked like it was being individually molded into different shapes, similar to the previously stained stories, though now with mirrored surfaces. 
concave, convex, and everything in between. Making her mistress, if that was what she was deciding to call herself, appear as if she was entirely constructed from an evil sentient funhouse, one that kept shifting as the sphere turned on its axis. Around them, Jamie noticed there seemed to be only a trace of the destruction that Jamie had previously wrought. Shards of transparent, mirrored and multicolored glass floated around, inside and outside of the sphere like deadly, foreboding shark fins. With a flick of the mistress's left wrist, the shards on the inside of the sphere ceased their orbiting motion, and one by one, the shards began to melt into a liquid of an extremely thick and oily quality. Open-palmed, the mistress raised her hands as the oil began to bubble and spit in all directions, making Jamie shut her eyes for fear of being blinded permanently. The mistress laughed. <laughs> Eyelids don't make a difference, but I haven't brought you all of this way to remove your sight. Quite the reverse, in fact, given that I just returned it to you. Jamie opened her eyes again. Seeing the bubbling glass had now all collected together in between the two of them, now heavily obscuring Jamie's view of the mistress. Suddenly, Jamie regained control of her upper body, now able to twist her waist and move her arms and neck. Her lower half was still trapped, but it was a definite improvement. If you're choosing to cooperate, you deserve to be more physically comfortable, the mistress said as the liquid morphed once again, so that it now looked like a molding sandstone rectangle, about half the width of the sphere's diameter. Jamie watched as the runic markings carved themselves into and around the sandstone's border, each corner marking slightly larger, gleaming red. Is this a seeing stone? Jamie asked, realizing that she had once again regained the ability to speak out loud. Her nose and ears, it seemed, had also stopped bleeding. Seeing stones come in all shapes and sizes. However, at a foundational level, their internal construction consists almost entirely of sentient sand. The sands of time. If you know what you're doing, and you have the ability, at least in the realm you call home, to measure and manipulate these sands on a molecular level with a smattering of subatomic, what you get, at least in the mistress's case, is a viewing gallery of moments, of memories, a portal into the past and future, with the hope, or rather the goal, of affecting the present heart and mind of the person in question, which, in this case, was Jamie Mortimer. In every sense of the phrase, this was her time, and from what she could see, it was fast running out of control. Yes. The mistress hissed. The word was a long, pointed whisper. Your stone. Some people prefer a semicircular shape to its structure, but I do happen to gather that you've recently begun to enjoy regarding things in 16 by 9. And so, I thought I'd take the liberty. Very funny, bitch. bitch. Jamie snapped. I'm not the one spending too much time in the communications bay. Jamie snarled. Well, actually you are. Touché. The mistress hissed. Now then. She added, appearing at Jamie's left side in the blink of an eye. Where do you want to start? Well, as this is obviously some kind of interrogation, I defer to you. Jamie turned her head, 
Fixing her brightening grey eyes on the mistress's inky pools, she held her stare for what felt like a long time, and then, with an echoing click, the sandstone gallery ignited. Three. Mercer. August. 1889. Clouds. Grayish-white plumes of swirling smoke. A fitting storm thundering across an ever-changing painted skyline. Willow trees. Three of them in a row, existing a large humans with the part, atop a jagged descending cliff edge of white rock, were extremely grateful for the coolness of the rain the night before. They were preparing to cower as the pre-dawn heat began to slowly rise along with the sun. As prepared as they were for their daily round of photosynthetic-themed suffering, the willows could not have anticipated the new batch of clouds that were beginning to cover the sky. The willows peered up with their many kinds of eyes, their foliage eagerly and gratefully swaying in the swelling wind. They were near bursting with the kind of joy a lone, stranded human may experience on a desert island, ultimately and precariously teetering on the edge of sanity and death before regarding an approaching benevolent vessel. Something was approaching. Not just the clouds, but perhaps what they heralded. The trees stiffened, the coming rain not exactly forgotten, but compartmentalized. Three creatures, tall and broad and clawed, crept over the pointed terrain, approaching the willows silently. Their teeth were sharp, their skin was dark grey, their thick legs were armoured, their ears reminded the trees of that of wolves. Creatures perhaps as common to these parts as the willows were themselves. However, other than the teeth, the ears, the snouts, and to some extent the claws, these were not the kind of wolves to which the willows were accustomed to providing shelter. Usually they walked on four legs instead of two, possessed four toes on each paw instead of five, and all four paws usually matched in design as opposed to two differing sets of matching appendages. One set, on the bottom half, far more reminiscent of common wolf paws, though bigger, wider, and sharper in this mysterious case, and the other set, much similar to that of human hands. Now, these willows were no strangers to humans. On many occasions they had provided shelter for a lot of them, many wolves also. What they weren't accustomed to was regarding a hybrid of both human and wolf, and what they would never get used to is neither human nor wolf marking the willow's territory for their own. Given the natural shade, shelter, and therefore service the willows couldn't help providing for passers-by, being urinated on was not exactly the kindest of gestures, though all three hybrids seemed to care not for the dignity of these poor trees. Though, the hybrid trio's final gesture, far less placatory, was the final piercing blow to the tree's willowing sense of natural duty. In unison, all three wolfmen raised their right arms. The sound of iron muscles stretching taut alongside the crackle and pop sound of tiny pockets of air being once again filled with hard-set bone. Silence followed, utter and all-encompassing. 
Though the willow trees could still feel the wind, they could no longer hear it. Then came the strike. Diagonal, deep, and piercing, the claws sliced through the willow's trunks, carving three identical, permanent scratch patterns into the willow's epidermises. And then the wolfmen were gone. Just like that. Leaving the trees to bleed in the cloying silence. The two willow trees at either side of their trio looked inward, feeling something strange on the peripheries of their winding, entwining roots beneath the earth. In the space of the few seconds that followed, a strange and sinister furry fungus began to sprout and cover the middle willow's trunk and spread to its branches, cutting off its supply of almost everything, over half of the essential plant elements. Some of these elements reacted in a technical positive way, causing them to replicate beyond the middle willow's means of containing them. A large amount of oxygen, carbon dioxide, chlorophyll, among others, were destroyed, whereas other elements like potassium, nitrogen, zinc, and sulfur began to replicate, causing the willow's insides to collapse both in and outwards. A splurging explosion of matter so powerful it sent the middle willow over the cliff, held only by its fizzling, decaying roots, before it too was gone, leaving only a poisoned chasm flanked either side by the other two willows, who themselves had been sent opposing ways due to the force of the explosion, now leaning precariously sideways, like decaying towers of nature, both poised to fall their own ways over the cliffside and die much slower than their middle friend had, given their less intrinsic proximity to the root of the ridiculous infection. Looking around, as they hung, Losing grip on their own kind of consciousness, the two survivors regarded the view over the cliffside, made possible by their friend's demise, and as their many eyes closed for the final time, the sound of the world, blocked out by the rising of the wolven claws, returned, but only in response to far-off screams and near-distant wolven howls. Ninety years before we stand within a town of shame. A wretched hive of those who lie within the human name. They didn't know they'd no permission to procreate and tame. Two played for freedom. One lost the game. The scouts stalk in the darkness and the husbands walking lame. He wrestled with his reasons to withdraw himself insane. Though hope lies in the darkness, he felt it never came. Mother's the marker. Scouts kill for fame. The witch arrives, ritualized, wolves scratching on the door. They have her far outnumbered, and yet they don't know the score. In time, they'd learned that Mortima lacked patience to her core. Wolves take advantage. For this is war. Luring, casting, striking, binding in the rising sun. The wolf and scouts decreeing that the fight's already won. They've poisoned mother's bloodstream. The child inside is done. You want to save her. They get to run. You want to save her. Wolves get to run. 
four fateful choices. Are you going to stop rhyming anytime soon? You dare interrupt my flow. Your flow is creeping me out. You sound like... Like that thing. A portrait of my face, pixelated by grains of partially morphing sand, began to cascade over the most recent perspective flashes pertaining to Megan's quick and yet incredibly painful physical healing process. One that Jamie had immediately commenced as soon as the lupine scouts were out of sight of her third eye. If Jamie didn't stay calm, the healing spell would fizzle out, even with Megan Hennessy's own Acatanian antibodies fighting alongside it. And this wolf bite was a nasty one, possibly administered into one or all of the scouts' bloodstreams, so any violent contact with Megan would ensure infection. They must have got to her before she'd arrived. It wouldn't have taken much. Jamie stared hard at the sandstone's depiction of my face, though my face alone was enough to make it glitch in earnest. Yeah, like them. Do you even know who they is? What they are? They told me it didn't matter. And you believed them? They brought me back from an accidentally self-imposed purgatory. If they can do that, then I'm guessing explaining exactly who and what they are isn't so simple. You were the one that pointed out that Redgrin enjoys explaining things. Things about other people, Jamie counted. They're not so hot in revealing too much about themselves, about their past. I can get behind that. I can't. Obviously. You're just here to give me a hard time, right? Jamie stared at the mistress for a long moment. Among other things. I'm here because you think I have to take one big long look at myself and arrive at one or several epiphanies. I can tell by the whole beachfront memory setup you've got going on. What do you want to know? How my mother died? When I first discovered I could do magic? When I was first taken prisoner? Not necessarily in that order. The mistress said, looking ever so slightly flustered for the first time since their meeting in this place. Though, if Jamie scanned the grand scheme, this meeting was one that happened, it seemed, every time Jamie had looked in the mirror over the course of her bendy existence. The moments where you look in the mirror to take a good look at who and what you are can vastly vary in reception and intensity when you have the ability to travel millennia in seconds. Can you think why, listeners? Fine. I'll tell you, but only if you tell me what happened to Jeannie. I know you have the power to tell me that. I can see it in your eyes, and I know those eyes. There was a long, naked silence. Deal, the mistress said, thrusting out a serpent-like arm. Stretching out blackened, ashy fingers, she widened her smile along with the palm of her hand. Jamie shook it uncertainly, catching a childlike gleam in the mistress's eye that Jamie hadn't seen, let alone felt in her own, in years. The image of my face remained pinned over the shifting, cycling moments that were Jamie Mortimer's life. The image of me obscured these moments, smiling brightly over the immortalized pain. There were times where the seeing stone appeared merely like a badly organized or even glitching computer desktop. 
At other times, everything bled together far too convincingly, forcing her to the conclusion that she was staring at what it felt like to live inside her head. The mistress reignited the gallery, a teeter of laughter escaping her cracked, blood-red lips. So, how does this work? Who talks first? What do we get? Ten questions each? Jamie's voice was reticent, yet casual. We're here to assess you, the mistress said, simpering. Who's we? Jamie queried. A small spiking of paranoia jabbed at her side. She looked again at the breathing image of my smiling face upon the sandstone, the cycling moments only visible beyond the corners of the overlay. Where are you? Jamie thought, as quietly as she was able. More than anything, she was attempting to force her eyes to remain as blank as possible. Not here, sweetheart. The mistress jeered. Once again, the other her snapped her plagued fingers. And Jamie actually saw layers of skin peel off, along with the sinister, echoing sound of her magic, and join the excess, orbiting glass strewn all about the atmosphere. All at once, the image of my face disappeared revealing the cycled moments, though they seemed to have moved forward from the short battle outside the Hennessy homestead, and the later healing process. As a great deal of these moments were being seen through her eyes, a lot of the footage, especially the stuff concerning the combat, seemed to Jamie to have a first-person shooter quality that she was feeling herself beginning to warm to. Now seeing it in front of her, she could recall it all with vivid detail if she looked away and shut her eyes, like her battle with the Wolven Scouts that occurred yesterday. Although, in Jamie's case, perhaps that was closer to literal than figurative. The mistress studied Jamie carefully, occasionally glancing periodically at the seeing stone and then back to Jamie, comparing and contrasting, it seemed, the objective from the subjective. It was the best way for it, because the mistress was indeed an it when it wasn't busy emulating lives for the often detriment and occasional benefit of those it assessed for it to have reference points to help its case. Those who travel in time, or follow those that plan the routes, tend to be far harder to assess than those who exist in a purely linear fashion. Because, of course, as they travel the seams of time, their lives begin to be wound up in far more than the span of more than just a few decades. Decades all following one after the other. The mistress returned her gaze to the morphing sandstone gallery. No. First, Jamie Mortimer appears in the Old West in 1889 to fight off a poisoned pack of werewolves. Then, she was drinking with a stranger at a bar in Ware, Massachusetts, in 1979, just before the stranger died. And yet, on the same night, within the same couple of hours, Jamie was also witness to the brutal murder of Wendy Wolf in Edinburgh, 1979. The perpetrator? Her nine-year-old son, Grison Wolf. Jamie stiffened, leaning forward and squinting at the sandstone. N no she stammered, sounding as scared as she felt. That's not right. I, I wasn't- Quiet. Let the stone do the talking. The sentient sand itself seemed to quiver at the following images that they, by the mistress's capable and careful nurturing over time periods unknown, were compelled to portray. No lies, only truth. Only truth was possible here, in the mistress's dimension, and the truth was that Grison Wolf had taken his mother Wendy's head off, with, it seemed, his pasty, bare-knuckled fists alone. 
With the help of the basement foundation floor, a sturdy and ultimately apt anchor point for an abusive mother's descent into hell, Wendy's head had been removed with such deadly downward force that it had burst through the concrete in a mass of blood and pulp, continuing its crushing journey further downwards to ultimately rest on the plumbing below the house. The mistress looked back at Jamie, who had tears in her crusted eyes, the confusing images breaking through her considerable defenses. Human matter strewn and scattered, picture frames askew, spattered with blood and caked in some other unknowable human fluid, a muddy quality that turned the stomach all the way over into its sudden grave. A picture of Wendy and her husband Ulrich on their wedding day. Next to that, a picture of Wendy holding Grison when he was less than six months old, beaming or baring her teeth with a staunch motherly pride that Wendy seemed to believe she truly possessed. Ulrich also attested to this, given that he had been the one to capture that particular moment, that particular shine in Wendy's eye. On that day, just over eight years ago, when they had been good, when they all had been good. The image glitched once again, invaded and ultimately overwhelmed by Jamie's overriding thoughts. Thoughts about what she could have done to prevent those images from coming to pass. I know what you're thinking, the mistress said, the cold smile cutting into her face. Of course you bloody do. Jamie said, the tears running down her cheeks as if her eyes were malfunctioning taps. Would you change it, if you could? Your choice. Jamie gritted her teeth beyond closed lips, and as her following words escaped them, she hated herself. Not the mistress. Herself. Redgrin gave me that choice. Oh, Redgrin gave you that choice. Well, that may be the case, but you were the one who made it. And off you trotted to the Old West, in your new corset, boots, and sentient trench coat, specially tailored by Redgrin themselves, by the way, to see the sights, flex your newly undead muscles, and make smaller people feel smaller. That was the choice you made. Oh, you may have saved Megan's life, and maybe in the grand scheme of things, Megan's life is worth more than Wendy's. But who are you to decide who lives and who dies as a side effect of your need to escape from your own past and need the being such as Redgrin nurture and to some extent feed off of? Redgrin's my friend. Redgrin's your friend? Then where is Redgrin? Shouldn't they be bursting through this unbreakable sphere clad all in black, brandishing some unknowable hybrid weapon sourced from future's past? Or maybe he'll just use a freeze gun. That's what he used to keep you at bay. What are you talking about? Don't you remember? The Undermines. Yes, I remember. As you never tire of pointing out, it's something I never stop thinking about since I've spent the last... I don't even know how long anymore trying to escape it. That's where, or rather when, you're trying to lead me, right? The Crisis. The year 2020. You want to know what they did to me in there? The mistress did not reply, only stared. Jamie actioned that one-sided smile that she knew the mistress detested so much. You want to know why I'm still alive? 
I want to know what you think gives you the right to strut around the finite curves of time, making amends for past and future misdeeds like you deserve it. As a time traveler, you're present, and therefore the constant of you is a misdeed in itself. Regardless of whoever your friend, Redgrin chooses to ally themselves with, or they choose to call family. Redgrin brought me back because they needed me. They told me so themselves. Redgrin brought you back because they were lonely. Because of their miscalculations, and if you like your ultimate capitulation and resignation to the venom of the snake that was ordered to bite your arm, Redgrin lost, or if you like, misplaced their friends taken by those in control of the Undermines, beings that live on regardless of the facility's destruction, and in the fallout, thousands of people were killed. And you help with that. And don't forget where we are in your human history, Jamie. I know Jamie Mortimer bowed her head in shame. I know. Do you? Let's recap. Don't! <laughs> Jamie roared. The mistress stopped. You're right. I destroyed one of the few places left in the world in the 21st century that wasn't riddled with the Dark Pill Death. I further suffocated the lives of those already ruined by the collapse of the United States. I destroyed their new home. I wrecked the lives of the natives too, all in one fucking night. And even after I was brought back from the dead, I failed to save Megan's baby boy. I failed to save Grayson. And I failed Jeannie. Oh, Christ, I failed Jeannie so freaking hard. All at once, the mistress was in Jamie's face, their noses touching. The one belonging to the mistress was as cold as ice. I still believe that Redgrin's goal of bringing you out of Summerland was ultimately strategic, due to you being one of the most successful Undermine's test subjects. Suddenly, the mistress was pacing up and down in front of her, again stealing the occasional glance at the morphing images upon the sandstone. To Jamie's mind, the pacing was reminiscent to that of Marvin the Martian. They needed you, and you needed them. And my task is to ascertain whether this was by design. Maybe you are just two guilty consciences floating through space, and time forever making things worse. And yet, perhaps, that itself is also by design. But what is not in my, in our opinion, is for you to continue squandering this second chance you have been provided with. Grab it, hold it tight until it burns your hands, and do not find yourself in bars drowning sorrows over things you cannot change. Once you enter the causal nexus, every time you choose to take a trip alone or with your friend, you may not rehash your own new timeline to undo further mistakes. Genie cannot be resurrected, even with your level of power, a power level I am far from sure you deserve. However, I will commend your efforts of preservation on Genie's part. We shall see that she gets a proper burial, and that her parents are notified. We? You mean, y you and me? No, I don't. Who do you mean then? It hardly matters. The mistress said, turning away and raising her hands to once again edit the sand. Why? Jamie asked. There was a long pause, and then the mistress turned, perfectly emulating the smile that Jamie had used to get under the skin of her interrogator. 
the mistress opened her darkened mouth. Because you never even know we were there. Jamie did not directly respond to this, just thought for a bit while the mistress had her back turned. Are you scared of them? Redgrin, I mean. Honestly, it depends on the light. Jamie laughed. She laughed hard. She heard it, felt it, and was shocked, but let it come, and welcomed the warmth in her stomach. The mistress turned to her, also laughing. For a while, they laughed together, finally mirroring each other for the first time since Jamie had looked in the bathroom mirror with a dead genie beyond the other side of the door. So, is this your job then? Jamie asked after the laughter had reached its natural end, keeping an eye on time travelers. Not exclusively time travelers. Reflections exist in all places and planes of existence. The psychologically wayward travelers are my particular crosses to bear. Then you must know a fair bit about a ridiculous amount of personal histories. Only when I need to. Well, right now, since you're me, and I need to know what happened to Jeannie, do you think you could find that out? Now you've made me cry, real tears and all. The mistress smiled. Jamie smiled back. I guess you do deserve at least that much. Five. Heart and Stone. Given the curious simultaneity with which the event of Wendy's murder coincided with the realization of Jeannie's demise, the same fateful night on the 31st of October 1979, the mistress, who had also seen fit to release Jamie from her invisible bonds, allowing her finally to rest her weight on the unforgiving marble-like flooring, decided to alter her methods. She offered Jamie a physical chair, one of a matching set, the other of which the mistress took for herself. With a click of the mistress's fingers, Fingers which, Jamie noticed, seemed to be returning to a colour far closer to that of her own. A small sandstone table materialised between the two of them, upon which sat two identical cocktail glasses, with two seemingly identical mixtures of liquid housed within. The colours looked like that of a delighting night sky, or that of an ever-expanding nebula cloud in the deepest regions of space. Within the liquid, Jamie could see small bright sparks of near-blue electricity, turquoise lightning striking against the sides of the glass, trying hard to escape its confines. I thought they seemed appropriate, the mistress said, picking up the drink closest to Jamie and putting it in her hand. The glass felt warm on Jamie's palm. Cheers, the mistress said, clinking her glass against Jamie's with a strange motion of delicacy. When the glasses touched, the sparks within both glasses seemed to join, like the noble gases within a plasma globe when a hand is placed on its casing. For a long few seconds, Jamie was transfixed by the sparks, and when the high-pitched clinking sound commenced, the telltale ringing seemed to create a gentle reverberation around the atmosphere. One by one, the individual squares of mirrored sand that previously existed as the walls of the spherical chamber seemed to split at the center of the sphere's diameter, expanding out all around them, beginning to endlessly spin and spin. After a short interlude, and then a partially blinding flash, Jamie saw, after her eyes had readjusted, that the room was more reminiscent of a long, endless hall, existing perpendicular to the sandstone. Either side, at quite far distance, the tiny individual reflecting squares remained, now lining endless columns that extended into the bright distant whiteness beyond the seeing stone. 
What do you know about furious angels? The mistress asked, as if the bizarre transformation of their surroundings had not at all occurred. Jamie looked at the mistress. She was leaning forward in her sandstone chair, her face and teeth seeming far cleaner and far younger than they had appeared before. The mistress raised the glass to her healing lips and sipped. It was in that same second that Jamie realized she was doing the same. Swallowing, she lowered the drink and scanned the glass again. Wow, that's pretty good. What is it? The mistress smiled, leaning back in her chair. I call it the Traveler's Calm. Jimmy continued staring at the glass. And what are these sparks? The mistress looked away, now appearing in front of the seeing stone in, once again, the blink of an eye. She raised her two arms, stretching them out in front of her, the hue of the runic markings bordering the sandstone changing to a sickening violet. There was a sigh, and then the mistress said, The storm. I repeat, the mistress said, moving her hands in a delicate pattern as she queued up the next few moments. What do you know about furious angels? I know that Redgrin spent quite a lot of time with them, and I know that he has one furious dude that he holds in particular high regard. Zerzero? Yeah, that's the one. Jamie took another sip from her glass, letting out a pleasured breath of air once the liquid had escaped down her throat. Have you met him? The mistress asked. One time, Jamie said, the images in her mind loud and clear to the mistress, memories so loud that they glitched onto the seeing stone's overlay without prompt, very, very briefly though I don't remember it. Regrin filled me in. Did he tell you how Zerzero did it? How he killed you? He used some kind of artifact, I think. Jamie took another sip. The ring of, um, something. The ring of what? I don't know. Red never said. All I know is that it was powerful and he wasn't supposed to have it. That it came from the first of the higher places. The ring of Wajet? The mistress queried. She was now facing Jamie, coming closer. That sense of casualness fast ebbing away. I don't know, Jamie said, tensing slightly in her seat. The mistress growled in frustration. Then she sighed, attempting to calm herself. Jamie noticed a slight wince against some internal pain in the mistress's head, which she was attempting to shake away. Breathing slowly. Calming. Did it look anything like this? The mistress stepped out of Jamie's view. Upon the overlay was a moving image of a ring, a silver band with the insignia of the Eye of Horus as the centerpiece. Egyptian glyphs surrounded the eye, a glow of green emanating from their carved lines. The all-seeing eye blinked as the ring turned on its axis. I have no idea, and I cannot help but notice that you have failed to answer the one question I need answered. What happened to Genie? Jamie glared at the mistress, attempting to pierce her now grey eyes with a show of strength and Jamie did indeed feel stronger. Maybe it was the alcohol. Fine, but you're going to need another drink. A motel room door. At first, that was all the seeing stone depicted, the overlay glitching slightly over the graininess of the wood that made up the structure of the door. Is that... Jamie said, not finishing her question because it no longer needed to be asked. The number on the motel room door, and the characteristics matched that of the one that Jamie had been staying in, with Jeannie, the same door that she had entered this strange place through from the other side. What further confused her was that, 
after the door was opened, what Jamie saw was herself. But not in the mirror. There were no mirrors in view, but lying in the bed, asleep, a few meters away from the door's threshold. Next to her lay Jeannie. She was lying on her back, her chest healthily and peacefully rising and falling. Jamie began to sweat. There were so many questions she wanted to ask, so many things she wanted to know. Was this all the mistress's doing? Was she, was it, able to enter Jamie's world and carry out obscenities in her name? Just to teach her a lesson about time? No. As far as Jamie had been able to work out, the only moments that she could see were moments that belonged to her. But this moment didn't, given that she was seeing herself asleep in front of what were clearly somebody else's eyes. Briefly, Jamie thought of my face again, and then dismissed it. What would I have to gain by murdering Jamie's first night of passion since her awkwardly painful resurrection? Gloved hands stretched into view, hands clearly not belonging to me, which helped Jamie further banish her compartmentalized paranoia. That paranoia, however, sparked up in another place, inside Jamie Mortimer's soul, a more painful, serious, unresolved place. Oh God, Jamie gasped as the dainty leather-gloved hands began to reach towards Jeannie's incredibly elegant neck. Jeannie swallowed. Jamie saw it happen as the dim light from the outside of the corridor was cast out by the shadow of the tightening hands. The hands now upon the neck. The light source returned. Then the hands began to squeeze, and Jeannie's eyes shot open. No! Jamie growled, a half-finished drink falling from the table as Jamie launched herself closer to the screen. Take me. Please, take me. Not her. The eyes that were watching Jeannie die, as Jeannie herself was held still by the weight of who was on top of her, moved slowly to their right, watching Jamie as she too writhed, but in her dreams. I was dreaming, and she was dying. Do you know who that is? The mistress said. How did you get this? Jamie asked, wiping her eyes. She wondered briefly if she'd ever get to stop crying. It came to me in a dream. Don't worry. It'll be over soon. It was indeed over. Jeannie's life was over, but it seemed that this gathering of moments was not. Now, the mistress stood and joined Jamie inches from the seeing stone's overlay. It's supposed to end as she dies, the mistress said, sounding genuinely uncertain. It's not supposed to. The mistress trailed off. Together they watched, transfixed, as the eyes, which had focused on Jeannie's now glazing ones in her final seconds, moved away from Jeannie, as if whoever they may belong to was now standing over her. Gently, the killer removed the glove, revealing a light brown hand with a distinctive scar on the right thumb one that occurred thanks to the thumb's owner not concentrating while cutting carrots for a dinner party, one that Jamie had attended years ago and slightly ruined by throwing up all over the host's legs. Jamie had always hated carrots. No, it... it can't be. It can't... Jamie stammered. She had known ever since she had seen the gloves because it had been Jamie that had gifted them to her for Christmas. The killer then removed the other glove, feeling Jeannie's neck for a pulse. Satisfied, she closed the victim's eyes with the tips of her fingers, and then turned to face what lay behind, 
a mirror. A mirror housed on the wardrobe door of the main part of the room. To the left of that mirror was the doorway to the same bathroom that Jamie had broke down in. But that didn't matter anymore. What mattered was who was staring into the mirror. A tall, willowy woman with a previously warm and inviting stare, now burning cold, cutting into the glass. Shaira. How? Before Jamie could finish her question, the mirror broke, inwards on Shaira's side and outwards on theirs. A perfect bare arm, unaffected by the sharpness of the glass, was now sticking out of the seeing stone. Moving back, it gripped the stone's border, somehow using it as leverage to climb through to the mistress's dimension. Both Jamie and the mistress stepped back. Jamie grabbed the mistress's glass and began to down it. Somehow she knew it would be necessary. No. No. This is impossible. Nobody I know has the power to do this. Who the hell is this girl? The seeing stone now nothing but a gaping, glitching hole between two worlds. The figure of Shaira climbed through, glaring at both Jamie and the mistress. My name is Shaira Stone. And you left me to die. Shaira. Shaira. Before Jamie could even get the name out, Shaira thrust her right hand out in front of her, widening her palm. The mistress was suddenly gripped by a cripplingly powerful pain, causing her to fall to her knees. No, Jamie said, running to catch her reflection. Leave her alone. Like you left me. Or maybe you mean the way Redgrin left you. They swore to return to me too. I guess their word means nothing. Shaira, I'm sorry. I was going to come for you. I swear I was. The mistress's screams began to intensify, as if Jamie's words themselves were killing her. Shaira squeezed a mimed neck in front of her hands, the actual distance between her and the other two a considerable amount. How could Shaira have this power? You can't just punch your way into the mirror dimension. Even if that did sound plausible. Please, Jamie protested. You have to stop this now. Shaira smiled, her eyes now burning an orange-red a color that Jamie recognized, but she couldn't think why. Oh no, my love, Shaira said, as the mistress continued to fade into a wet, sandy consistency, draining away through a crack in the floor. I'm just getting started. Shaira raised her other hand, now lifting Jamie off her feet and turning her in the air. How are you doing this? Never you mind, whore. The word cut into Jamie deeper than she ever thought it could. No, why don't we send you back where you belong? Shaira turned to the hole in the world. Suddenly, a voice tickled Jamie's ear. Can you hear me? It was the voice of the mistress. How? Never mind how, just listen. You need to get out of here. No. She's damaged the stone so I can only send you through to one place. Make your choice. Make it quickly. Grayson. Jamie thought, as hard as she could. Send me to Grayson. Very well. Until we meet again, Jamie Mortimer. Happy Halloween. Thanks, sweetheart. You too. At that moment, the world around Jamie and Shaira began to shake and quiver. The atmosphere was now filling with sand 
a sentient storm, hoping to provide enough distraction for Jamie's escape route. No! You're not gonna get away again! Shaira increased her mental grip on Jamie, grabbing at her neck and squeezing. The storm grew in intensity, lifting Shaira right off the ground. Around and around they spun, the seeing stone-shaped hole in the world the only thing remaining unaffected. Shaira began to lose her concentration, and that was when Jamie used a large amount of her returning strength to hit Shaira with a physical blast of mental energy. The shockwave, far more concentrated than it had been when she had lost control inside the stained glass story hall, catapulted out of her head and through her hands, blasting Shaira in her black crop top and grey jeans and white trainers back in the direction of one of the disintegrating mirrored columns. Seeing her chance, Jamie went with the direction of the wind, allowing it to send her screaming through the seeing stone and slap bang into late 20th century Scotland. I will find you, Jamie Mortimer. I will find you. If you're a podcast clown like I am, you must have dreamed about starting your own. Let me tell you, my dreadful darlings, it's never easy, but it's one of the best decisions I ever made. It was either that or waste away in my own subjective ascendance. Of course, it can be more than just a little overwhelming to know how to get started. Buzzsprout can help you launch your podcast professionally and in style, linking you with all of the major podcasting platforms such as Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and much, much more. Join us up in the buzzing, sprouting podcast cloud to breathe in the renowned analytical sound of the accurate analysis and promotion tools provided. Follow the link in the show notes below to start your journey and receive a $20 Amazon gift card. We're waiting for you. Buzzsprout, the best and excitingly prettiest way to start a podcast.